Richard Hoppe and Timo Nebraska and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, and he has made it on a Monday in this case. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, Cameron himself, on the very Monday on which this edition of the program was recorded, published his top 50 free agents. That is, he published a post in which he ranks the players who are also free agents during the 2017-18 offseason. We perform a review of that post. It is not an exhaustive review, although given the identity both of host and guest, one can rest assured that it is exhausting. Specifically, Cameron discusses how the increased import of bullpens might not only benefit uh, somewhat marginal relievers, for example, a a Tommy Hunter, but how it might hurt uh, back-end soft-tossing sorts. Uh, like a Jaime Garcia or Jason Vargas. Cameron explains how CC Sabathia's postseason performance might help him in free agency, and yet, conversely, perhaps paradoxically, uh, how Yu Darvish's poor postseason performance might not hurt him. Also, we once again celebrate our annual tradition, uh, which is to identify which ballot I forgot to produce for the crowd while conducting the contract crowdsourcing series. Uh, we reveal the identity of the player. Tyler Chatwood is the identity, but we reveal it in this in this episode as well. Also a slightly grim moment in the program. I asked Cameron, of course he's managing editor of Fangraphs, I asked him, hey, uh, Cameron, is it possible, will I be able to look forward to recording Fangraphs audio far into the future? His response gives a little reason for optimism. I think those days are pretty much over. As I say, grim, grim. Uh, we will get to a conversation with Dave Cameron in a moment. What I'd like to say first, both because it is my privilege and also my duty as an employee of Fangraphs uh, is that Fangraphs memberships exist. A reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears there. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers can acquire what is called an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership Available at Fangraphs.com. And then by clicking around once you're there. Okay, uh, that is complete now. What do we do? We move on to a conversation uh, with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Well, just like last week, uh, there was something that demanded attention. In that particular case, it was a, uh, a recapitulation of the World Series. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, I believe that probably your publication of uh, what you regard at least as the top 50 free agents uh, probably merits some attention too, Dave Cameron. We should probably talk about the start of the offseason. Yeah. I guess what? Did it, I mean, it's already started. Wasn't it the Angels' fault? Didn't you uh, cast aspersions against them last week? I mean, they yeah, they re-signed Justin Upton. But, like, you know, he technically didn't have to use his opt-out clause, so he wasn't a free agent when they signed him. So, I don't know. I mean, you can kind of consider that the start of the offseason, but we haven't had, like, a transaction where a player changed teams yet. Uh, have qualifying offers been extended yet? They have. 
I've, and it looks like it looks like they've been rejected too. Is what I see in the same in the same breath. Yeah, um, they haven't officially been rejected yet. I mean, they will have been by the time you post this podcast in three weeks. But uh, yeah. uh, as of the time of recording, uh, they have not officially been rejected. But everyone is expected to do better than that in free agency. If I'm not mistaken, last year represented a new high in terms of players accepting these qualifying offers. That's is that right. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Like Jeremy Hellickson? Was he one of them? Hellickson took one. Um, Did Matt Wieters took? accept one at some point? No, no. Wieters mm-hmm. took a two-year deal from the Nationals. Um, oh, yeah, of course. I feel like it wasn't last year that Colby Rasmus took one. Was it the year before? Yeah, it must have been the year before, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, right. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember last year. Last year was, what, the Justin Turner isn't good off season when we had to like yell and scream and be like Justin Turner people and they got sixty million dollars. Yeah, well, probably the Dodgers weren't upset about that. Uh, the Dodgers were quite. I mean, you know, he certainly probably, uh, certainly probably. I mean, anytime you can start a sentence with certainly probably, you have to do it. Uh, you gotta take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's an LA guy. He probably took a discount to stay in LA, but at the same time, Justin Turner signed for sixty million dollars last year. Like, that was crazy. Um. Okay. So. <clears throat> Uh, so you've done you, so the uh, there were nine qualifying offers extended. It appears as though all of them will be rejected, um, and so the, we don't necessarily have to contend with that. Although the, that's nine more players who have uh, what some sort of compensation attached to them, right? Yeah, they've changed the compensation this year, though, so it's not as straightforward as sign one of those guys and get a first round, you know, get a first round pick or lose your first round pick. It's now based on whether you're a luxury tax payer, uh, a revenue. Revenue sharing, sharing a receiver, uh, how much the player signs for, whether it's more or less than $50 million. Um, so it's actually kind of complicated to figure out who's getting and losing what, depending on who they are. Basically, if you're dealing with a huge payroll like the Dodgers, it'll cost you more to sign a uh, player, but you don't care because you're the Dodgers. And if you're a you know, small market team, it won't cost you quite as much. Uh, no, Zach Cozart was not one of the. I, w- I was interested in Zach Cozart specifically right now, um, and I know that you actually wrote about him recently as well, because his uh, his contract projections are right around fifty million dollars. Right. Um, which seems to be, as you note, there's um, that's there's a, that's a bit of an interesting figure for guys who are who are given uh, who have been uh, uh, extended qualifying offers. Yeah, which Cozart wasn't. If the crowd's right and Cozart gets fifty to sixty million dollars, the Reds really screwed up. Uh, cause they chose not to give him a qualifying offer for one year and 17 and a half million. Um, I tend to think that the Reds are probably mostly right in this scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, I think Kozart's not gonna sign for 17 million a year, uh, and I think he's not gonna get the four years that the crowd thinks. Um, so, you know, if they're looking at it and saying, look, if we had to give him 117, and we think he would have taken it, and we would rather get him back for something like, you know, maybe they're hoping they can get a little bit of a hometown discount and get him for 330 or something. If you're, if he's got 117 on the table, he's probably not taking 330, because then it's basically 213, as you know, you're taking six and a half million a year for the extra two years. So once you put 117 on the table, it really limits your ability to get him to a multi-year deal closer to that 10 million every year, which is probably what they want to pay him. So I think it's not that they didn't want Kozart back or they don't think Kozart's worth signing. Uh, but they thought putting $17 million a year salary on the table would make it harder for them to resign him to a, a slightly longer, slightly cheaper deal. Right. Um, maybe we'll return to him later on. Uh, basically, though, uh, an introduction to this, to this, uh, 
to your top 50 free agents post. This is something you've generally done annually. I think it's appeared in slightly different forms, um, although you've taken the more uniform top 50 approach. Um, or I, I should say it's become more uniform because we've integrated the, the results of the uh, contract crowdsourcing into it as well. So it's all top 50 yeah. with the, the data from the crowd and also f- with your own estimates of, of what each player will receive. Correct. And it seems to me that what you have here, it's a bit of a hybrid list in the sense that you include figures, you include those figures for um, for what you as- anticipate each player to receive, but that's not necessarily the order in which you rank the players. Right. Uh, as I uh, I realized like the the ordering can be a little confusing because we then present all this data and the list is not sorted by any of that data. So it's just like the data is there for reference, but that's not the criteria. The criteria is theoretically like what players would I, you know, it's my personal preference on free agents. So, you know, I like Carlos Santana more than Eric Hosmer. Eric Hosmer is going to get $50 million more than Carlos Santana. Like everybody agrees that Hosmer is going to blow Santana away in, in, in kind of free agent dollars. Um, but I prefer Santana as a player, and so um, it's ordered by my personal preference. Uh, but but then we provide additional information that shows, like I think Hos- you know Santana is better than Hosmer, but it, myself included, everyone expects Hosmer to get significantly more money. Right. So there's some, there's some sort of uh, it's not exactly like your like the midseason value rankings that you do, but there is some sense of value um, sort of integrated into the methodology here. Yeah, but I'll probably do a couple follow-up posts on the expected bargains and then what they call the free agent landmines of the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can bet that, like, the fact that I think Carlos Santana is, what, the third best free agent in this market, he's like, I'm only projecting him to sign for $72 million, and the crowd projected $45 million, which would be, if anyone gets Carlos Santana for $45 million, they win the offseason. Um, well, uh, what, what happened to Ben Zobris last year? What, what was what, well, How did that work ago. out for him? Two years ago, right. He got $56 million. Okay. Uh, but he was 34, I think, when he signed that contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, so age played a significant role. And he, you know, he got 56 million with like 15 teams bidding on him. Like everyone was agreed that like Zobris was a guy you want to sign. For Santana to get 45 million, his, his market would have to fall apart. Like it would have to be the Edward Encarnacion situation from last year where, you know, the Indians signed someone to replace him so then they're not interested in bringing him back and then nobody else wants him for some reason. And then in January it's just like, well, who can I play for? Um, but, you know, given the Santana's, like, a very consistent, very low-risk three-win player, uh, and there's a lot of big market teams looking to add hitters this winter, like, it's very hard for me to see how Santana ends up in that Encarnacion role, especially because Santana can play first base. Like, Encarnacion, part of his problem was that he was basically a DH, which eliminated, you know, half the teams in baseball. Santana can play for all 30 teams. Uh, so you mentioned that, that there are some large market team looking for bats. Now, this... Um this became a theme during, uh, you know, just before the uh, the July trade deadline, yeah. which was, I, mean, I think, probably uh, best expressed by the relatively modest package that um, the Diamondbacks sent to Detroit in exchange for J.D. Martinez. I don't know if uh, you can describe that as a modest package. I would describe that as, like, a full cover-up, like a total, like, whatever, like a nun's outfit. <laughs> like it was like a hijab, maybe. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So right. So relative to what Martinez was, and then he was even more of that after the break, right? I mean, he was he was fantastic once he, he was crazy after getting Arizona, yeah. Right, and obviously one doesn't expect that, but it points at the sort of 
uh, talent that he possesses, the sort of power he possesses. Yeah. Um, which is, I assume, all of this is why you regard him as the the, the second best free agent available. Yeah. Uh, why Why is there going to be more of a market for this sort of batter uh, just, you know, like four months after the fact? So I think if you look at the uh, availability of, you know, power hitters who didn't play great defense this summer, there were a lot of teams out of contention, like the Tigers or, um, what, like Jay Bruce with the Bats. There were a lot of teams who were trying to, like, trade this kind of player, and there were only a few buyers who um, could look at it and say, you know, we're in a position, because, like, so many of the pennant races were basically decided at that point. Like, in July, the Dodgers had, like, a 25-game lead in the NL West, and, like, the Astros were 15 games up in the AL West, and, like, uh, it was basically pretty clear who was going to make the postseason. So you were looking at teams saying, okay, I'm basically just buying for the three weeks in October, the four weeks in October, uh, and how much of an impact can a somewhat defensively limited hitter make on my, on my team in the postseason, like some impact, but if I don't really need him for the stretch run and I'm just giving up for the postseason, which is kind of a crapshoot, how much do I really want to pay? Um, and so now you're in a situation where that's not the case, right? Like the Dodgers can assume they're probably going to win the NL West next year, but they can't assume that it's a lock. They can, like, they're, you know, they had like 99% playoff odds in July. The same thing with the Astros. Like they were already in the postseason. Um, those teams can't really make that same assumption heading into next year. Um, so you're going to have teams uh, more inclined to make significant upgrades than there were four months ago uh, based, based on the fact that the standings are back to zero and zero. Right. So I, and I guess that's true. I mean, we've certainly talked about that from the point of view of especially the, the, the value associated with pitchers and in particular relief pitchers at the right. deadline, right? Yeah. That yeah. they have outsized value at that point. Yeah. Um, but I suppose we're, we were only ever sort of implying what what the normal quote unquote normal market is, right? Um, but as you as you point out here, normal market is it's I probably weighted more heavily towards uh, towards everyday players, right? Um, and and you actually make another you actually create another sort of category, which I suppose I understood um, w- without ever having ex- expressed it though, and that is the type of starter a fourth or fifth starter who has much more value value during the regular season than he does in the postseason. And, and I think both Jaime Garcia and Justin Vargas are sort of the uh, yeah, the who, representatives from this class of players. Yeah, Jason Vargas, not Justin. Uh, yeah, and Julio Chassin got thrown as their right-handed brother. Uh, but, yeah, there's like these like back-end starter types who you look at and be like, if he gives me 150 – you know, league average innings, that's pretty valuable in the regular season, right? That's like arms I didn't have to call it from AAA. You know, there's a, there could be, you can really sink your season if you just have to like rush your prospects. They come up, they run in the area of eight, like, you, you can hurt yourself in, in, um, quick fashion if you're cycling through pitchers at the back end of your rotation trying to find someone who can just give you six decent innings. So having a Vargas or a, you know, a Chassin or, um, Garcia, someone back there to kind of solidify the back end of your rotation is pretty valuable the first six months of the year. But then what do you do with them in October? Like, uh, Jaime Garcia was uh, traded to two different contenders within the span of a week. The Yankees ended up with him, and I don't think he even appeared in the postseason. I don't think he pitched a single game for them. If he did, he might have faced, like, a batter or something. Um, 
Despite being he doesn't the, have the his because he's not the sort of pitcher right whose stuff plays way up out of the bullpen. I mean, you're just not going to stick Jaime Garcia in a one inning role and be like he throws 98 now. Like uh, you know, I mean, it's theoretically possible. I guess we probably would have said a similar thing about Kenta Maeda, uh, and he was throwing 95 as a setup guy. But they kind of prepped him for that a little bit. And Maeda is a guy who is a swing and miss pitcher. Like even as a starting pitcher, he misses bats. And um, so Garcia, I think you're you know is a more of a like a soft tossing lefty like. Vargas and you know Chassin throws a little bit harder. Maybe you could imagine him playing up as a, a harder throwing right hander. But even then, he's going to sit ninety four or ninety five with mediocre command. Like most playoff teams now have seven or eight relievers who can do that. So uh, because bullpens have become so much deeper than they used to be, and teams aren't just looking for like a closer and an okay setup man, and now their fifth starter is their third best reliever. I think we're really in a situation where. Basically, every team who gets to the postseason is trying to have five, six, seven quality relief arms. That makes it tough for a guy like Garcia or Vargas to fit in anywhere. Like, you can move him to the bullpen, but then there's the long relief guy. And I think, you know, one of the things I realized in October is, like, there's basically no role for a long reliever in October. Because if your starter gets pounded early, like Luis Severino did in the wildcard game... You can't give up. You can't just punt the game and be like, well, uh, you know, every game is so important. They're going to just gonna go right to whatever pitcher they think can get out of that jam early. You know, no one's going to get left out there to give up seven or eight runs to where you're just punting the rest of the game. So so there's no situation where you'd really use a long reliever. If your starter gets pulled early, it's because you brought in a better reliever in order to try and put out the fire, and then you've bullpened your way through the rest of the game. If you're up 10 to nothing, managers don't trust their... B team relievers to hold any kind of lead, so uh, so it's always the A guys closing out any kind of victory. Um, the the long reliever is just basically a wasted playoff spot, a wasted roster spot in the playoffs. So so here's a question: uh, I believe research indicates that contrary to what might seem logical, right, that there is nevertheless a a linear relationship between. Um, wins or, uh, or war specifically and um, average annual value. So, and, and what I mean by that is that even star player, star players don't receive some sort of bonus necessarily above and beyond that. Isn't uh, that what research indicates? I wouldn't say it's tied to annual average value um, because if you, like there's definitely a difference in contract length. So I, I would say that the models that can predict free agent salaries that are based on linear estimations do just as well at the bottom end and top end. Okay, With right. the exception of, like, not bench players. So, like, you know, you can have a one more guy who signs to be a backup first baseman. He's not going to get $10 million to play that role. As long as, like, basically once we kind of control for being given a mostly everyday job, mm-hmm. uh, then it's pretty linear after that. So it's pretty linear after that, right? Yeah. But, <clears throat> what, but it seems as though maybe your analysis of, like, um, Jaime Garcia and Jason yeah. Vargas yeah. and Juli Chassin. And then additionally, like how you wrote about uh, Wade Davis too, right? Yeah. Who's a reliever who would provide um, inordinately, inordinately high value in, in the postseason. It seems to me that there might be room here for – especially for the Garcias and Vargases yeah. to – to actually be underpaid relative to the amount of wins they're likely to produce. So I think we're going to see some stratification in baseball, especially on the pitching side. So the Mets came out the other day and like sent out a press release basically saying we're going to start bullpenning in the regular season. Like we're basically besides Syndergaard and Degrom, and both of those guys have health issues, and we don't know 
how well they're going to be able to pitch six or seven innings every start next year anyway. Um, besides those two, everyone else is going to get yanked in the fifth inning. Like they're just going to go two behinds through, and it's going to be the Rich Hill plan. Um, we'll see if they can like stick through that, but they're going to carry eight relievers all year. Like this is a fundamental change going on in baseball, where the postseason pitching plan is going to get adapted, not as extremely because you can't do it for six months to the, to the level they do it in the postseason with more days off. But to some degree, the postseason pitching plan is going to come to the regular season, which is going to devalue those back-end starters. Um, you know, those guys used to be asked to throw six or seven innings and, you know, keep you in the ball game. Now those guys are going to be asked to throw four or five. And so innings are getting shifted from the less good starting pitchers to depth arms and, and bullpen guys. And I think we're seeing money going to follow that allocation where the guys who pitch you back in rotation will get less than they used to. And the sixth guy in your bullpen will get more. I mean, we're talking about like Tommy Hunter is going to get a two-year deal, according to me, this uh, uh, this this offseason. Any reliever who has any kind of recent success or velocity is going to get paid. I mean, we're talking, you know, like uh, I think we listed what, like fifteen or sixteen relievers on this top fifty. And I think Many, see, I mean, I remember the first year we did it. There was like I think three or something. Right? Yeah, the first year I did it, you were just like. Yeah, just like pick five guys who are yeah. like who are closers mostly. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's it. And I think the, we had to do twenty. We had to do. T- I, I crowdsourced for twenty relievers out of the seventy-five total players. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a significant change in baseball, and I think that's going to continue this winter. Where teams say teams are looking at it and saying, if I'm a contender, and I I think I need six or seven bullpen guys heading into October. The reality is, like, even the six or seven I start with at the beginning of the season, some of those guys are going to break down, and I'm not going to trust them in the playoffs anyway, right? Like, the Astros bullpen the first half of the season was unbelievable with Chris Devensky and Will Harris, like, all-stars, and Ken Giles was great. And they get to the postseason, and it's, like, Brad Peacock and Justin Berlander on short rest, and, like, uh, so even if you have, like, a really good regular season bullpen, doesn't guarantee you're going to have those guys, you're going to trust those guys and feel that they're fresh enough to pitch well in October. So you really need like nine or ten guys throughout the season. You can't acquire them all at the beginning of the season, but the more you acquire up front, the fewer you have to acquire in July when the prices are insane for relief pitching upgrades. So I think we're going to see, especially teams who think they're pretty likely to be buyers, uh, are going to be very aggressive in going after guys where maybe we don't have high leverage innings for him. Like maybe Tommy Hunter signs with the Dodgers and he's their seventh best bullpen arm. But they're still going to be interested in having that kind of guy around uh, because at least, even if he's not necessarily the guy that they're going to in the eighth inning of a World Series game, he can soak up valuable innings during the season when they're kind of uh, pulling their starter after five or six innings uh, and allow them to manage their pitching staff differently. So I think these guys who you used to look at, and, you know, it wasn't that a couple of years ago, you could get a decent reliever for 3 or $4 million on a one-year deal. I think those days are pretty much over. So it's going to have – it is going to have – I mean, just um, – I was just acquainting myself with the, the Mets announcement here. And as you noted, it's going to be, what, Syndergaard, DeGrom, and then everybody else, kind of. Yeah. Um, but that does – it really does change the market. I, I mean, and this, this is for one team. I don't know. Is it is it an advantage for a team to make that decision to sort of be on the, uh, the avant-garde uh, as far as that goes? Because then y- – you're able to maybe find deals where there wouldn't be some in, say, three years if half the league is adapted to this sort of style? 
Maybe, but I think enough teams. I mean, the Rays have been doing this for a few years. Uh, there's been a, like three or four starters in the in Tampa organization over the last few years who were literally just 18 batters and out. Um, you know, they did this with a number of pitchers over the years. So this isn't like the Mets are the first team to do this. They just kind of announced that they're doing it instead of mm-hmm. like having people notice. Um, so I think that there's been enough of a shift at this point to where you know we saw relief pitching prices go way up last offseason. And I think they're going to go up again. Um, and I think the prices for non-elite starting pitchers are going to be lower than people think. Like, you know, my estimate for Jake Arrieta was lower than the crowds. Uh, I think Darvish will get significantly more. I don't, like, I didn't understand the crowds estimate on you, Darvish. Uh, but I think most of the other pitchers you look at, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not expecting outside of Darvish, uh, what I've had, like, Alex Cobb at 60 million. Uh, Lance Lynn at like 48 million. Like the prices on free agent pitchers, I just don't think are going to be hot as hot, nearly as high as we've seen in past years. Like a couple of years ago, Jordan Zimmerman got 120 million dollars. Like he might get 50 million or 60 million in this market. Like I think the the idea now is what we're really saying is in the postseason you ride your top couple of starters and your six or seven best relievers, and that's how teams are going to build their pitching staffs. Uh, now let's talk about you, Darvish, for a second. You noted that let's see, uh, you. Uh, you project six years and 168 million. Yeah, that's a that's an averaging of value of 28. Yeah, the crowds averaging of value is about four or five million behind, and yeah. they have about a a year fewer. So, yeah, maybe but over that long, it comes out to you know 40 50 million dollars, uh, 40 million dollars, I guess 30 yeah. 30 40. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, the point is that, that the crowd has. Um, has uh, assessed his likely contract to be much lower than the one you have. Now, yeah. that could be certainly from the reason that the crowd typically airs uh, on the low side for the the most premium free agents. Well, yeah, it's just the nature of sampling from a I mean in free agency the t- the player signs with the highest bidder, not the right. average of all the bids. Right. So just the fact that we're you know, like we could probably get a better estimate of what the player would actually sign for if we just took the top ten percent or something along. Yeah, should I mean, what would that do if we took the ninetieth percentile uh, estimates for? Maybe, maybe you should do that since you have all the data. Oh, boy, yeah, it sounds like something that a motivated person would do. Doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> Someone uh, yeah. without like a four-month-old baby, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, so so you mentioned that, so that's one reason why that could happen with Darvish. Yeah. Another one is um, probably because we were, I mean, the ballot for you, Darvish, probably came out pretty close. Right, right to, after the World Series, yeah. Yeah, right. Or you know, dur- you know, yeah, it was actually probably during the series. I, he had had at least one bad start, I think, is the point. I mean, I mean it would probably be better for him if, like, yeah, it came out before the second bad one, which basically cost him the World Series. Right. So the so I guess my question is, um, so that so that could be another reason. Um, now you you write in your uh, assessment of Darvish as the first overall uh, the top free agent available this offseason that you don't think that teams will really account will really weigh too too heavily his poor performances in the World Series. That's uh, yeah, two starts. His two starts, right? Yeah. Now you also state that you think that CC <clears throat> Sabathia might benefit, if only slightly. From his performance in the postseason, so yeah. I guess my question is, and I know you've you've said more often than not, postseason performance really does not play a very large part. Doesn't appear to play a very large part. When can it though? Yeah, I mean, I think with Sabathia, we have a thirty-seven-year-old. Um, you're probably looking at a guy who, where his recent performance is going to be 
put in more heavily because the question is how much does this guy have left in the tank, right? Like, you know, are you looking at Sabathia as a guy who might be able to give you, you know, 150 innings next year and then has to retire or is giving him a two-year deal crazy? Um, so the fact that Sabathia was, you know, basically at his best in the season at the end of the year and pitched really well against, a, you know, the best offense in baseball and a very right-handed lineup in the Houston Astros – I think he showed something um, where teams could say, I think I can start this guy in October, and he separated himself from that Garcia-Vargas-Chassin class. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty large determinant for the eventual contract that the pitchers get, is can I start this guy in my playoff rotation? And I think Sabathia pu- pushed himself into a team's playoff rotation with his playoff performance. And um, so now you can envision, be like, if this guy's my number three starter in October, I'm okay with that. Or at least, you know, my number four starter in October, that's fine. Uh, you don't want to miss your ace necessarily, but if he's in your playoff rotation, it doesn't hurt you. And uh, I think that probably will earn Sabathia an extra five to $10 million. Now you mentioned that, uh, that the, let's see, the prices for free agent relievers last off season were up considerably yeah. from, from what we would expect from the historical norms. You expect them probably to be higher even again this year. Um, uh, I wonder though if, if there is any, if there has to be a ceiling for relievers simply because one of the reasons that pitchers tend to find their way to the bullpen is because of uh, risk of injury. And if that if that is going to create some sort of ceiling, um, you know that maybe we will not hit this year, but we'll hit you know in, in years to come. Yeah, I mean, I think part of why, you know, we saw the two or, you know, the two biggest, uh, or three biggest contracts for relievers ever in baseball history, uh, last year with Jansen, Chapman, and Melanson, um, that was a, you know, Chapman and Jansen are two of the five best relievers in baseball. Like, those guys usually aren't free agents at the same time every year. Wade Davis is, uh, not very far behind those guys, but he's a little bit behind those guys. Um, and he's the best guy out there this winter, and there's a pretty big drop off to the next best guys. So I think, we're not going to see as much total money spent on relievers this winter as we did last winter just because it's not as good a crop. But I do think the depth arms are going to see it go go up. I mean, was it three years ago now that Andrew Miller got four years and $36 million and it was kind of scandalous that that much money went to a non-closer? And Andrew Miller is, I don't know, maybe the best reliever in baseball and, that, and probably if he was a Frazier today, would get 70 or $80 million. Mm-hmm. Um So, you know... I think what we see, the valuation on those kind of guys, like I think Brandon Morrow is going to do pretty well. Um, Joe Smith, you know, the, the Brian Shaws, like those guys who previously wouldn't have gotten paid. Uh, I think they're they're going to go from, you know, they used to get 10 or 15 million, now they're going to get 30 or 40 million. Um, I should probably ask you about Tyler Chatwood. You should. You, uh, you rank him 17th among uh, on the, the top 50 list. Yeah. He... Um, <clears throat> Every year, not you by always, design. You'll always miss one guy. I whiff, uh, yeah, I whiff on a guy I believe. Uh, well, the first time when I really whiffed was uh, Johnny Peralta, I think, one year. Yeah. I made it entirely, and I think he was a top 10 uh, free agent. He, he got like $50 million a year, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it's been, you know, there's been a different player every year. In this particular case, it was Tyler Chatwood. Now, to be fair, Cameron, I send you this list to curate. But to be, was, I guess, was Chatwood on the original list? No, he wasn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so you sent me a list of like a hundred guys, and Chatwood didn't even make that cut. No, it just from oversight, right? Okay. From oversight. So I guess, I guess, right. Th- to be fair to you, you you assume 
that I have started from a from a complete list because I also sent to you like a whole list of maybes as well. Yeah. And you, I remember like there were a few guys not on the original list that I made you add. Do you remember who any of them were? No, I don't. I'm not going to uh, remember any of that. Yeah, I don't remember either. Um, but I think there were like I went through your list and was like I then double checked it. So we but we missed this one together. Right. Yeah. You you had, more severely, but yeah, right. Because it's easier. It's just like it's like with language, right? It's always easier to identify a word than it is to to think it in your head to think it up. The onus is on me, is my point. Yeah. I'm scrolling back through our archives to see if I can figure out um, who else has forgotten. really good podcasting information here. Well, hey, you know what I could do right now, Dave Cameron? What's I could that? put on the I could put on the Fangraphs hold music. Let's do that. Let's hold. found it. Uh, I actually just, like, cut a bunch of people from your list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't actually add that many. Like, you wanted to do a contract crowdsourcing for uh, Danny Espinoza. I wasn't about to let you do that. Right, uh, uh, yeah, because Danny, uh, well, we've talked about this, and I did this uh, with Eric Loganhagen on the prospect side recently, but the process of updating one's files, yeah, uh, one's mental files about a player. Yeah. Danny Espinoza... Had a decent 2016 season, didn't he? He did, this sort of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was okay. Was he worth multiple wins? Yeah, I think he was like a two-win player. Right, which is fine. If you're, if you're, yeah, if yeah. you produce two wins and you enter yeah. free agency, then you would be in that. But no, but he was, he was quite bad in 2017. He I was terrible, later. released multiple times. Yeah, he, he was really. It was the same thing as when he was bad in 2013, and but he seemed to, he seemed to pull himself out of that. Yeah. I mean, it's not that Danny Espinosa couldn't help a team in 2018, but, like, if we asked the crowd to guess Danny Espinosa's salary, it would be, like, a few people being, like, one million, and a few other people being, like, two million, and, like... And then most of the people would be, like, why isn't there an option for <laughs> minor leagues? Yeah, right. Like, like, like what information are we going to get about everybody agrees that Danny is not going to get any money this winter? Yeah. So that's why I told you that you couldn't do Danny Espinosa or... No, I think that's fair. Dan, uh, and Danny Michael Valencia Pineda, I think you asked me to add. Yeah. You asked me to add Michael Pineda. I did ask you to add Michael Pineda, yeah. 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 But I right. also missed Tyler Chatwood. So we both did. So what is uh, what's the so let's update uh, please update my player file on Tyler Tyler Chatwood who I suppose the last I knew of him was a right hander without exceptional stuff in terms of swinging swinging and missing, uh but would get ground balls. Yeah, that's mostly still true, uh, but I think last year the stuff jumped, so his average fastball went from like 93 to 95 and a half or something, like, he throws pretty hard now. He still doesn't miss a lot of bats, but it's, I think, a league average-ish strikeout rate um, with a top-of-the-scale ground ball rate, which is always a nice place to start. He walks way too many guys, but as Mike Petriello noted, um, if you get him out of Colorado, perhaps he's less... Uh, concerned about pitching around people if the ball's not going to fly 20 miles when it gets contacted. Um, and I think they have a high spin rate, uh, on his, on his pitches, which is, uh, what got Charlie Morton a two-year deal last year. Uh, even after Charlie Morton had not been very good the previous year. And, and Colin Charlie McHugh, Morton. isn't that how Colin McHugh went to Houston as well? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, the Astros basically just started targeting high spin rate guys, and and then we'll and he was actually on the Rockies there. when they selected him. I mean, he was he went from I believe he went from Colorado to Houston directly. There you go. So uh, so Chatwood's getting some of the Charlie Morton hype, um, but I think you know realistically he's probably still a lottery ticket pitcher, like kind of Brett Anderson ish, where you're mm-hmm. like, eh, there's some stuff here, but also occasionally he's bad and he's hurt a lot, so you don't want to like you know give him a hundred million dollars. But there's at least some raw materials here that make you think, like, take him out of Colorado, figure out how to throw more strikes. Maybe the spin works better at a not-altitude location. You can see Tyler Chatwood putting up a three-win season next year. Right. It, is there a sense – so you mentioned um, the, the the sort of effect that leaving Coors Field could have. Is there a uniform – I understand that park factors exist, right? Yeah. But it also seems as though – when the, the sort of ways that pitchers might attempt to deal with course field might create all manner of I mean I'd like for me it's like the it's like the equivalent for just like the human psyche of like you know anxiety attacks or you know you know your obsessive compulsive behavior because you're because you end up in these sort of feedback loops uh, is there any sort of uniform adjustment that we see to pitchers after they leave course or is it pretty varied? Yeah, it's varied. I mean, my, obviously the Rockies have tried a lot of different kinds of pitchers over the years, so then um, not everyone's going to do the same thing when they leave. Uh, I think generally what we know about how pitching is impacted at playing at altitude, beyond just the fact that the ball flies further, so that changes you know, your results on contact, is uh, breaking balls don't break as heavily, and so um, guys who are curveball reliant are probably worse off and so you probably see guys moving away from their breaking balls a little bit more at altitude um, so if you take a guy like Chatwood away from Colorado he just might throw his curveball more often um, it's you know hypothetical we would depend on where he goes but the curveball so is kind of becoming in vogue anyway so. do sliders still work there it's, they do but uh, so like I think the, the impact is mostly on vertical movement um, mm. So the sliders, a lot of sliders are more horizontal movement than the vertical movement. You do have some guys who throw sliders that are basically hard curveballs, like Lance McCullers. Um, and I think he actually calls his a curveball. Um, but, you know, if you have one of those, like, side-to-side sliders, uh, it's not as impacted as the up-and-down curveball. Yeah, because I was thinking, uh, I mean, obviously John Gray uh, was was pretty successful this year. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering about his his pitch mix and what might allow him to do it. He he doesn't throw he does throw a curveball at least per uh, per the. He pitch, does. I think uh, in the wild position. card game he basically. I'm trying to remember because I live blogged the game and I got on him for throwing way too many of one of his breaking balls, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a terrible breaking ball. I don't remember if it was the slider or his curve, but one of them he was throwing. Far too often. So he he throws a slider more than twice as often as he does his curveball. So maybe yeah. So curve. I think he actually threw too many curveballs in the wild card game, and it wasn't in Colorado. <laughs> so maybe he right. was overly encouraged about like, look what my breaking ball will do now that I'm not at altitude. And then Diamondbacks were like, look at this, wee batting practice. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, let's see. Well, I mean, we've reached a point where we could break now. Is there anything uh, you feel I have not addressed significant or uh, sufficiently with this top fifty list? I mean, obviously. One can simply read it. Uh, yeah. But are there any other themes that emerged while you were composing it that you feel um, need, ought to be addressed? Uh, I would say the main thing that you to note this winter is this is an exceptionally risky free agent class. Uh, you know, every free agent class is always going to be 
mostly older guys and, and players who hadn't resigned to their teams because their teams didn't feel like they were worth the asking price. So you're always going to be selecting from a high-risk pool of players. But, you know, last year you had Justin Turner, who looked like a pretty safe bet to be a pretty good player. Uh, you know, you had, you know, Kenley Jansen, who's about the safest bet for a reliever in baseball, or Rolls Chapman, throws 104. Like, the, you know, there were guys where it's like, yeah, we're pretty sure what we're getting here. Uh, this year, outside of Carlos Santana, who you can bet on for a lot of walks and, you know, then decent everything else, uh, I don't, you, it's lottery tickets everywhere. Like, uh, JD Martinez's power is real, uh, but, you know, his defense has been really up and down. You don't necessarily know if you're getting a star or just an above average player based on how well he's gonna field going forward. Hugh Darvish obviously has Tommy John in his resume and has been up and down. Arietta was amazing and then more recently, not that great. Uh, you know, the, you know, Eric Hosmer, the most inconsistent player in baseball. <laughs> like, this is not a, uh, not an easy group to project. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. Uh, well, it's a, it's a good read, and uh, it exists. It exists. That's one thing it you can exists. definitely say about your top fifty uh, free agent list, Dave Cameron. Yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, I guess also there was going to be some sort of awards uh, announcements this year, isn't that right? This week, yeah. Or this week is what I mean to say. Yeah. Rookie of the year, manager of the year, Cy Young, and MVP. Okay. All right. Which of those announcements do you think will have been made uh, before this podcast goes up? Uh, when do they happen? 6 p.m.? Uh, I think only the rookie well, of the year. I think they're having over the next four days. I think that the, I think only the rookie of the year will have been uh, announced by the okay. time this podcast goes up. Well, then manager of the year will still be uh, an award no one cares about, but it won't have been announced by the time you're listening to this. Yeah, that's right. What did, did you did you uh, bet on? No, bet. <laughs> did you yeah, vote on I, any of them? I did vote. I had uh, National League Rookie of the Year. Enosaurus and I both had National League Rookie of the Years. So, uh, 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 spoiler alert: we both voted for Cody Bellinger. Ooh, yeah. Now, uh, would you be I, allowed to say that if this were going up before six p.m.? Technically not, but I mean the reality is everyone knows that everyone with a National League Rookie of the Year vote voted for Kenny Bellinger. Like this is the most obvious unanimous pick in a long time. Yeah. Well, don't worry. Just just for you, I will I will make sure not to publish it before six p.m. on Monday. <laughs> yeah, I think you were going to do that anyway. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. That has been uh, Dave Cameron. He's managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.